Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show, on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital, is Rolf Apweiler. Rolf is a director at the European Bioinformatics Institute, headquartered in Cambridge. Um, Rolf, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Thanks for having me again. Yes, of course, it's not the first time that you've joined us on the show. And the last time that we spoke back in October last year, and um, we talked an awful lot about what the EBI has been doing throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, since then, a lot has changed. We've been in a, another lockdown in the UK. We've come out of that lockdown and now we're starting to recover from that again. And also we have a working vaccine as well. So plenty of things that have changed. But one thing that has remained largely constant throughout this crisis is that what the EBI has done is been joining efforts across countries in Europe by leading the European COVID-19 data platform, haven't you, Rolf? So how has that been uh, sort of coming along over recent months? I think we saw the growing importance of it. When we talked the last time, we still were quite hopeful um, that this would be uh, an issue for months to go uh, before we are um, over the, the worst. And as you said, some things have changed to the to the better. Um, that we had quickly vaccines and so on is it, absolutely fantastic in how that went. But of course, we were also um, badly surprised by new variants coming uh, through, which. Um, make it difficult to, to uh, see when we will be back to a normal, normal situation again and not just a um, changed normal. And I think that this, this adaptation uh, took time and we needed to set our work in a way that we are looking in a longer future and not just um, in, in for the short term. And also getting lessons learned from all of this for being prepared for other outbreaks, whether it's viruses or bacteria, so that we can worldwide react quicker. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important, isn't it? Learning the lessons from the pandemic to make sure that we're aware of future pandemic threats, but also in the more immediate term, we're having to make sure that we're not susceptible to the threat of new COVID variants and that has been something that sort of put the buffer on the government's roadmap out of lockdown, particularly in the UK, um, with, of course, rising cases of the so-called Delta variant, meaning that the freedom date of June 21st did have to be pushed back. It is, incidentally, the first step of that roadmap that has had to be delayed and the reason being was to allow more time for the vaccination program in the UK to take effect and hopefully protect the population. Um, do you think sort of looking back on that decision that it is a wise one ultimately because we've seen the effects in the past of opening things that little bit too soon maybe? Yes absolutely I think that the UK government I believe 
has learned the lessons from the things which didn't go right in the, in 2020. I mean, it's, it's fair to say that certain decisions were taken too late then, and um, sometimes this, the situation got really bad before action was taken, um, although advice was there to take action earlier. But it, this year, I believe the plans and the execution of the plans were very well done, and um, and uh, the decision to postpone um, and wait that more people are uh, vaccinated is, is clearly the right one. Um, so I, I think that, that's great. Um, and a lot of the things which happened in, in the UK or in other countries which were hit harder than, than others was in some cases, in some countries, used wisely for looking at this example and say, we have no exceptional situation in our country. We have probably the same problems ahead of us where that's behind the curve for a few weeks. So let's take the lessons and they these countries got better through. And some thought, oh, we are different <laughs> and they mm. didn't go through so well. But it's um, I, I, I think it's, it's one lesson to learn is really learn your lessons and act accordingly. And just don't think that you're exception as a person, as a region, as a nation, um, as a continent. I think that's very right. I think people have to learn that, of course, we are all ultimately in the same boat here, whether you're taking a zero COVID policy or whether you're trying to achieve that sort of herd immunity, let's say. And it has been greatly emphasised as well by the World Health Organisation, the UN and various other international bodies that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And until we sort of roll out the vaccine programme into some developing countries in the world, then there's always going to be the threat of new variants that could ultimately infiltrate Western countries. So... I suppose making sure that vaccines are globally accessible is going to be that next big step for sort of the powers that be to take, isn't it? Yes, that's true. Vaccination is, of course, something uh, where we need to uh, facilitate that more vaccines get produced and then distributed across the globe and really more according to the needs of the earth and not to the needs of the country. In the West, we are pretty selfish. Um, we are vaccinating people who are at now who are at a relatively low risk. But at the same time, in other areas, the pandemic is rampant and is uh, hitting populations way harder. And this is it's, it's, it's short-sighted by us because uh, having countries with a high virus load in the population means they will create more variation. Um, and some of them will be dangerous. And some of them will come to us uh, and will endanger our successes. So to be more globally thinking and and um, more altruistic will be beneficial for all of us in the long run. So that's the vaccination side. But it's also true for genomic surveillance of these variations in the world. If we don't know what's going on in the world, we can't anticipate what hits us. And a lot of countries don't have the infrastructure and the capabilities and competencies right now to do that. And again, it's the, the role of the, um, of the richer nations uh, to help. And help not in the sense that we, we take 
samples and analyze them and give back the results, we need to build up capacity and capabilities and competences in these countries that they can help themselves and are um, then in a better position uh, also to participate in protecting their people and by protecting their people, protecting the world. Exactly right. And um, one thing I do want to hone in on as well, Rolf, while we're here is the fact that using the data that you've sort of amassed over the course of the last 14 months, a great thing that you've been doing at the EBI is providing advice to government groups and advising politicians to sort of form policy to make sure that we're operating in a safe way when it comes to COVID. Um, when it comes to sort of leadership in that sense and that sort of responsibility, um, how well do you feel that you and your colleagues have really grown into that responsibility in that new role? Well, I, I believe in, in Britain, the scientific advice um, structure is pretty well developed. And then, of course, it's still a political decision what you take on uh, of this advice. Because, um, politicians need to weigh a lot of different circumstances and come there and need to take the ultimate um, uh, responsibility. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the structure for advising um, is, is very good in the UK. In other countries, um, in, in Europe and in the world, it's varying yeah? uh, from very good, like in, in, in the UK, to um, yeah, not existing because there's no politician interested in taking any advice. So, but again, the lesson is if you learn to communicate uh, from science to politicians and they listen, and also to communicate from science to the population to educate them and make them understand what's at stake and what's the situation. That's also important because a lot of people are nowadays not um, um, what it's, it's not really new. A lot of people are not scientifically very well educated. It's, it's just a fact, and, and we need to live with that. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for scientists to do a lot more public engagement to make science and its findings understandable to the population. So it's advising on different levels. It's not only advising politicians, it's also advising the public. And this is a role uh, where um, we as scientists in the past didn't get a lot of, um, um, yeah, how, how should I say it? That was not seen as our job. Yeah? And now it's important. And I think it's, it's great that this is becoming more important and it's something what a lot of people also like to do because they think it's important that people on all levels take decisions, take their personal decisions, take political decisions based on more evidence and facts and not on just on gut feelings and hearsay. I think that's an incredibly important point and I think making sure the public sort of are aware and very understanding of the science is hugely important because when people are being told that their freedoms are being restricted without really understanding the context of that and the need for it, I suppose what it has caused over the last 14 months is animosity towards people making those decisions and keeping freedoms curtailed. So that's an incredibly important point, Rolf, that you've raised there. Um, Fortunately, even though we've seen the final stage of the UK roadmap being delayed by a further month to allow for more time with the vaccination programme, I suppose there is now real optimism that 
we are in a position where those freedoms that people have craved can now return in the near future. Are you sharing that same optimism within the EBI and you expect that our freedoms are to come back over the course of the next few weeks? Yeah, I think in general I share this optimism because um, since the older uh, population groups are fully vaccinated, a lot of them are fully vaccinated and they are the more vulnerable. Even if we have another uh, wave of uh, Delta uh, now coming and Will be will get much worse um, for sure. It will still grow a lot, but it's mainly in, in very young age groups where less hospitalization and far less death will happen. It's still bad. Yeah, it's not a good thing. It, mm. it, we should still try to minimize this impact, but it it will be not a wave like the last one. And that, but on the other hand, I hear that it's in the human nature that you quickly forget and then are not um, necessarily learning the lessons for the, for the future, what to do. So we need to be better prepared and also look forward how we can make the world a place where such uh, jumps from animals to humans um, are not happening so quickly. And it's not only an uh, issue of... Um, of uh, of China or Asian countries or Latin American countries uh, or, or poorer countries. We just need to look at, at our own world here. So we have a lot of problems with antimicrobial resistance. We had that before already. And a lot of that is due to, frankly, stupid behavior by ourselves. Yeah? So most of the antibiotics are not given to humans. They're given to animals. And they're not given to animals because they are getting them more healthy. It's to make them live in bad conditions and still produce meat for us. So that's, that's just bad. Yeah? So we, we know that we are in a situation where we breed resistant microbes, which will hit us at some stage. But we're still doing it. We should not point the fingers just to other nations where problems are. We are also doing a lot of really silly things which we need to stop. Otherwise, at some stage, something will happen which is much worse than the current COVID crisis. I think that's incredibly important to take on board. It isn't a time for pointing the finger and for stoking the fires of division. It is a time to sort of bring the international community together to combat this viral threat. And indeed, as we look to do that over the course of the sort of next 12 to 18 months, and we hopefully do manage to regain our freedoms, um, what wealth, wealth do you see happening in the wider world with regards to the COVID situation? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being at the EBI this time in 2022, just before we wrap things up on the show today? So I, I think we will still be very busy helping um, countries with genomic surveillance and analysis of the data. Um, we uh, had Yesterday I had a, uh, was speaking on an uh, Africa-EU summit where I um, uh, showed what we were doing and there was a huge interest from African countries now 
to use our infrastructure uh, to do um, analysis of, of the data they produce. And that's something what we really need to roll out with the help of, um, of um, yeah, government, the help of charities like the Gates Foundation or the, um, the Welcome Trust, so that we, that we can build competencies and capacities in these countries that they can um, try to tackle that all. So that the moment there are still too many parts of the world which are not able to, to tackle the pandemic and it will be then a danger for the world still for years until we have the proper surveillance system and we have a proper uh, vaccination of the uh, whole world. And it will not be a one-off vaccination. We will will need refreshments based on the uh, refreshing of that based on the um, uh, the variants which will circulate, similar to flu. Yeah. And at the same time, we know that there are that there are more such pandemics in the making. Yeah? So we had SARS one, we had MERS, we had now SARS two. Um, and there are more viruses and bacteria which are potential dangers. And we need to build up a worldwide system which is open, transparent, and um, uh, ready to deploy that uh, helps us to, to yeah, pro prohibit that, inhibit that. So that's what I believe we and a lot of our colleagues worldwide um, um, are working on and where we also gather either substantial support by various governments around the world and, and organizations around the world. And I'm very happy to be part of this uh, uh, global um, um, work towards uh, a better uh, global health. Yes, it is a fantastic effort to try to sort of quell the threat of uh, sort of viruses, bacteria, pandemics, and really help the world advance forward and innovate. And I wish you all the best of luck in uh, your endeavours over the course of the next year, Rolf. And as we hopefully move out of the lockdown in the UK and we start to get a clearer picture of the way that this pandemic is going to develop, I think it would be great to actually catch up next year and have you back on the show with us a third time just to sort of reassess the ongoing situation then. It would be great. I'm looking forward to that. I thoroughly enjoy it as well, Rolf. It's been a real eye-opener once again, welcoming you onto the show with us today. And do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Yep. Thanks for having me again. Bye for now. Bye for now, Rolf. It was a pleasure to welcome Rolf Atviola of the European Bioinformatics Institute onto the show again today. Um, next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who will be offering his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. Um, that will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up.
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually. Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.